I want to lead us in a brief meditation on our Old Testament reading from Genesis 18, verses 1 through 15. So if you'll please turn there with me to page 12. Will you turn to page 12? You're reading from Genesis. And this is, uh, this is really a, uh, a unique passage on many levels. Uh, and the Lord appears to Abraham in this passage by the oaks of Mamre. And I want to point out three things. And the first is, when Abraham experiences this theophany, this manifestation of God, we notice right away that there's something mysterious going on. Because in verse 1, it says the Lord, Yahweh himself, appeared to him, appeared to Abraham. And then in verse 2, it speaks of three men. Did you notice that? The Lord appears, and then it talks about three men. Then again, in verse 3, Abraham calls the visitor Lord, singular. And he actually uses a Hebrew word here that's commonly used for addressing God. Not just a regular Lord, kind of master or boss or whatever. There's a word that's being used here that's commonly used to address God. And then again, in verse 5, it goes back to they language. And this, this kind of oscillation back and forth continues throughout the passage between the three and the one, between Yahweh and the threefold manifestation. And this oscillation caused the early church to see in this passage an early reference in Scripture to the Trinity. In fact, uh, there's a very famous Eastern Orthodox uh, icon that has these three figures by the Oaks of Mamre. It's commonly called the Old Testament Trinity. In fact, I have a picture for you if you want to pull that up for me. Now, this is a famous icon. You might have seen this around before. And, um, and, and there's a lot of interesting things about this icon. So, so all the way on the left here, uh, dressed in gold, uh, that's uh, supposed to be God the Father, dressed in gold. And you can see that the Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, Jesus is in the center, the Holy Spirit's all the way on the right, are sort of bending toward the Father. And, uh, and then Jesus is in the center, and you can kind of see uh, in the background there's an oak growing up from behind him. You see that? So that's the oaks of Mamre, and, and, uh, and oftentimes in, in uh, icons, um, whatever's most important appears bigger, so uh, apparently the oak wasn't viewed as super important to this picture, so it's tiny back there. And then Jesus has his hand over bread and his blessing bread. You see that Eucharistic imagery? Mm-hmm. And then there's the, there's the humanity of Jesus, which is represented by, by the red color, and the divinity of Jesus represented by the blue. This is very common in Christian iconography. You can see all three members of the Trinity are wearing the, the blue, the divinity color. And then all the way on the right, you can't see this as well, but if you look up other pictures of this, um, you'll notice that the Holy Spirit is actually looking at you. The Holy Spirit's looking at us. And the reason for that is the Holy Spirit is the one who invites us into this eternal love relationship between the Father and the Son. And so uh, so there's there's an old word for this, which is is called perichoresis. It's where we get a similar word for choreography, this idea of there being sort of a dance between the loves of the different members of the Trinity. And also, you notice uh, the main color that the Holy Spirit is wearing? Does anybody see that? It's green, right? And oftentimes in, um, uh, in liturgical settings, we'll say that the color for the Holy Spirit is red. And actually, that's not totally true. Uh, the, the color um, for the gifts of the Holy Spirit is red, 
But the most common uh, liturgical color throughout the whole season is the color green. And that's the color for the Holy Spirit because, like the Creed says, the Holy Spirit is the Lord, the giver of life. And so this sign of the Holy Spirit being connected, that God made creation through His Spirit, which was hovering over the waters in Genesis 1. And so this idea of green being a cover for the color for the Holy Spirit. So there's, there's lots more that we could say about the icon here. Uh, and... Um, Now, whether the Lord really intended us to see this passage as an early manifestation of the Trinity or whether this was just a sort of fanciful reading on the part of the early church, I can't really say. But I do appreciate the sort of gospel-saturated, Christocentric imagination that the earliest church brought to Scripture. Isn't it cool? Because sometimes I think, like, this side of the Enlightenment... We get too focused on the historical critical method and on fancy ideas like authorial intent. And we forget that God Almighty was involved providentially in the unfolding of Revelation, of, of, of all of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, from beginning to end, God was involved. And the earliest Christian, author, the earliest Christian church, that they knew, just like we do, that the Bible has many authors. But they remember better than we do that the Bible has a singular inspiration. To use the analogy that was used in the Alpha course last week, they knew that the Bible had many builders, but one architect Mm -hmm. that was providentially superintending it all. All right, the second thing that I want us to see in this passage that I don't want us to miss is the importance that it shows to showing hospitality to strangers. Right? It was probably in reference to this passage that Hebrews 13.2 says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Isn't that a cool text? Like you show hospitality to strangers, you don't even know. That might have been an angel you were showing hospitality to. That seems to be what's going on in this passage. Notice that Abraham literally ran to greet them in verse 2. And then it says again in verse 7 that he ran, even though running was not common at the time for a man of social standing like Abraham. And then he bowed himself to the earth, it says. Notice the posture that he has. He's showing honor to his guests. Then he implores these strangers not to move on too quickly, but to stick around to refresh themselves at his table and he lays out the best of what he has for them it's a feast of abundance he's like you guys just stick around for just like a a little bite okay can can i can i can i get you guys to stick around and then he lays out this feast in front of them which is really cool so this is a beautiful picture of biblical hospitality and this is an important theme throughout scripture rosaria butterfield puts it this way she says the gospel comes with a house key right so that's how near and dear hospitality is to the mission of God in Scripture. And hospitality has has always been a major emphasis for our bishop, Bishop Neil Labar. I remember when I first met him, he told me, uh, I don't mind door-to-door evangelism, but I prefer open-door evangelism. (laughs) He said, this is the way that I see it happening in Scripture. So I've highlighted the oscillation between the oneness and threeness in this passage. And we've underscored the theme of hospitality. Finally, I just want, to, want us to notice, before, before we get to, to Nick's missionary report, I want to notice the theme of laughter in this passage. 
So when the 99-year-old Abraham first learns of God's promise to bless he and Sarah with a child, it says in Genesis 17, 17, that he fell on his face and laughed. Now that's what Abraham does when he hears that he's going to have a child at his age. He falls on his face and laughs. And Sarah, who this passage says was advanced in years, 90 years old, well past the age of menopause, the text wants us to know, when she overhears the promise, and she laughs as well. And then finally, when Isaac is born in chapter 21, Abraham named him Isaac, which literally means he laughs. So what's the point of all this? Well, I think in part, it seems like they were laughing because they didn't believe these things were actually possible. Right? And in part, they were laughing because the promises of God are almost too good to be true. It's like there's, the, there's this like that. It's, it's impossible. No, that can't happen. Then also like, oh, if it could happen, but you wouldn't do something like that for me. That's crazy. Mm. That's too good to be true. And either way, I, seem, I, I think the, the point seems to be that there's, there's a vast gulf between God's power and man's reckoning of God's power. Right? Between God's goodness and man's ability to comprehend it. But the true goodness of God actually goes much deeper and farther than the promise we see in Isaac. Because thousands of years later, in that same ancestral line, there would be another unexpected mother. And this time, it wasn't old age that would make childbirth seem impossible. God sort of ups the ante, right? He ups the hilarity a little bit. Because this time, it would be a virgin. Like, what? How is this going to happen? Guys, I'm a virgin. Remember Mary says that? (laughs) And the one who was born is not going to be called the one who, it's not going to be called he laughs, but he'd be called Jesus, which means God saves. And while Isaac became the seed of a great nation, Jesus would become the savior of the whole world. God turns up the scope. It's a beautiful thing. Amen? Amen.